to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at OnScript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch, one of the OnScript co-hosts. I'm here in the UK at Westminster Theological Center. And my co-hosts are Matt Bates at Quincy University in Illinois and Drew Johnson at the King's College in New York City, although this year he's in St. Andrews, Scotland. I'm recording today from my basement here with my son, and he'd like to give a welcome in Abadibi language. Welcome to Podcast. There you have it. And uh, for this episode, we're going to be going theological again. But don't worry, we're still in love with the Bible. We hope you enjoy this one. As a note, Tom Ord, whom Matt Bates interviews, was outside a coffee shop for this episode, hence the noise. Also, stick around to the end of the episode for a few listener book recommendations. You, too, can send your book recommendations to us at onscriptpodcast.gmail.com and write a note about a book that's had a significant impact on you and a little bit about why. Oh, and by the way, those are Lego noises in the background. Okay, now on to the episode. Open theism. I'll say it again. Open theism. It's controversial. Some listeners are feeling the allure. Others are repulsed. Doubtless there are some out there who have little or no idea what open theism might be. I remember the first time that I heard about open theism. This was back in my Regent College days, 2001-2002, when I was working on my master's degree. My friend Brent Whitmire, who, by the way, at one point told me he had been listening to OnScript. Hi, Brent, uh, if you're tuning in. Uh, anyway, my friend Brent, who knew far more about systematic theology than I did, uh, I was and still am more of a Bible nerd, was telling me about the theology of Clark Pinnock. I had no idea who Pinnock was, but I remember Brent wide-eyed saying to me repeatedly, Clark Pinnock is a wild cannon. A wild cannon. Presently, my response to open theism is akin to Brent's at that time. It's wild. I'm drawn in because I'm convinced that there is something valuable that I need to learn and appropriate, but at the same time, wary of some of its claims. Our guest for today is a well-known and well-published open theist, Thomas J. Ord. Doubtless, he'll show us why open theism has proven attractive to diverse theologians and maybe even persuade all of us to become open theists. We're speaking primarily about Dr. Ord's book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, an open and relational account of providence, published by InterVarsity Press Academic in 2015. Welcome to OnScript, Tom. Hey, it's good to be talking with you. Now, Tom, we had to hopscotch around a little bit to schedule this conversation because I was traveling to the West Coast uh, for much of the first part of the summer, and you also had some serious recreation underway. What have you been up to? Well, I'm a big-time uh, backpacker, and I've been doing several trips, but uh, the most recent one is I hiked the Wonderland Trail, which is about 100 miles around Mount Rainier, and uh, had a great time, great wildflowers, a couple of big herds of uh, mountain goats, and uh, lots of time for reflection. 
Well, that sounds tremendous. I I have a passion for the outdoors, too. My father actually was a forester, and I did a lot of forestry tech work uh, in Northern California. And so I, I, I always feel drawn back to the West Coast cool. uh, and to, uh, you know, to nature and all of that. And I think it, it d- does inform our, our theological sensibilities. At least it has mine somewhat, but it probably has informed yours in more articulate ways than mine, as it seems like it's kind of up your alley. So can you describe some of the specific ways uh, uh, you know, your engagement with the natural world uh, has impacted your publications. Well, it's interesting that you asked that because I'm in the midst of putting together a series of lectures on God, photography, and nature. I'm also a, a photographer and uh, been asked to do some presentations in the UK and here in the US on photography and, and the natural world and how that what I think theologically about those issues. So I've been taking notes as I walk along. Uh, one of the things I think that struck me early on is that the natural world and hiking through the wilderness, you know, people see my pictures, which I oftentimes uh, try to make uh, as beautiful as possible, and they imagine that uh, most of the natural world or the wilderness is as beautiful as my photos. But there's also a lot of chaos, a lot of ugliness, a lot of uh, things that aren't so beautiful. And so that that's made me think about the problem of evil especially natural evil in different ways than I, I might have otherwise. Well, doubtless we'll get to probe that a little bit further as we continue. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Tom Ord is an award-winning author, and he has written or edited more than 20 books. His sole authored titles include Defining Love, A Philosophical, Scientific, and Theological Engagement, published with Brazos in 2010. The Nature of Love, A Theology, published with Chalice in 2010. His edited volumes frequently engage matters of science and theology. For example, uh, God in an Open Universe, Science, Metaphysics, and Open Theology edited with William Hasker and Dean Zimmerman uh, with Whip and Stock in 2011. Tom has also won the Outstanding Faculty Award 12 times as professor at Northwest Nazarene University in Nampa, Idaho, where he lives. Uh, he is known for contributions to research on love, relational theology, science and religion, and uh, Wesleyan thought in general. He's also an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. Now, Tom, after briefly affirming the goodness and beauty of our world, you open the book, uh, and the book we're talking about here is The Uncontrolling Love of God. Uh, You open the book by recounting three devastating tragedies in some detail. Why did you feel that's the best place for us to start? Well, I think sometimes when we think about uh, God, evil, and the world, and how to make sense of the problem of evil, we move very quickly into abstractions and doing so can can tempt us to not take as seriously as we otherwise should uh, the very specific evils that we encounter some of them are maybe minor compared to others but i wanted to begin the book with real life situations to draw the reader in to say you know this is this is an academic exercise but it has very existential very personal very real life implications and uh, we don't want to forget those because uh, that might tempt us to not take the problem as seriously in fact i sometimes think that theologians uh, move so quickly into answers, most of which I don't find very plausible, but answers uh, that, they, that, they, that they think somehow provide a defense for believing in God without really feeling and thinking and uh, experiencing in some way the genuine evils of our world. 
Yeah, it's certainly the case that we all know that evil is out there, right? But we we do, I think, want to slide quickly past it and to think about um, about good things. And so um, uh, we may give an academic nod to the reality of evil, right? But the, there's something existentially grabbing about uh, the real experience of evil that um, that maybe dwelling on it uh, can be theologically useful for us in that way. Yeah, one of the more provocative quotes, and I've forgotten now who 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 uh, originated this, but after the Holocaust, uh, one Jewish theologian said that uh, theology now must be done in the presence of burning children, or something to that that effect. In other words, uh, we can't forget the realities, the harsh realities of our world, and that should have a real impact on how we think about God and do constructive theology. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, Well, Kind of continuing on as you begin to develop your argument, um, and this is really a follow-up question in some ways, uh, as I think that some um, theologians, some philosophers, some thinkers are going to emphasize the regularities of life, the so-called laws of nature, and we can maybe discuss whether or not that's even a helpful category to talk about laws of nature, Uh, but others are going to emphasize the haphazardness or the randomness or the absurdities of life. Um, Why do we need to pay attention to both? Like, why are both necessary as part of our theology? Yeah, actually, the impetus for me to begin to write this book was that I had uh, been awarded a grant to study randomness and providence and um, how we might think about randomness in the world. As you know, and many of your listeners probably know, there's been a good chunk of the Christian tradition that has denied the reality of random or chance events in the world, or at least they've said that what we think is random and chance is not really random and chance for God. And as an open theist, I think there are some reasons to believe that uh, chance and randomness are actually chance and random for God, that these things might uh, surprise God in in one sense of the word surprise. And so I wanted to explore that, uh, the sort of the history of the emergence of randomness and chance in the contemporary world, and um, also then look at why everything isn't random, why everything isn't chance. The, uh, what, as you mentioned, what some people call the laws of nature, I prefer to call the law-like regularities of nature, to say that if we're going to begin to make sense of life in general and the problem of evil in particular, we need to also have some account of the way the world works. And as I see it, it Randomness is genuine, chance is genuine in the world, but also there's a great deal of uh, regularity in the world, and so we need to affirm both. Good. Well, I think you're, you're paving the way to, uh, to explore a little bit more fully what you do toward the end of the book with your, your essentially kenotic model uh, for providence. And so I think that's, that's sort of a good entry point for us. All right. In your third chapter, Tom, you speak of the limitations of a purely materialist or physicalist worldview, uh, a worldview that's often associated with scientific naturalism. What are the problems with the materialist worldview? And this might actually connect to your own life story a little bit. I don't know, but um, you did at least mention in the book that you went through a season of wandering uh, and perhaps had uh, even rejected God or were very uncertain about the reality of God. Uh, but then you, you, you came back into the theistic camp very firmly, ultimately, and are now a very convinced theist. Um, but I, I was wondering about if, if, uh, if you could articulate a little bit about problems with the materialist worldview and, and maybe even frame that in your own life story if it's relevant. Yeah, it is relevant. I mean, I, I'm 
fortunate to have been raised in a family with loving parents and uh, a loving church. I was a committed Christian. In fact, I was an evangelist when I was uh, younger. But um, I then eventually took some courses on philosophy of religion and and uh, read arguments from atheists, agnostics, those from other religious traditions. And in that process, realized that the reasons I had for believing in God were not very strong. And uh, in the name of honesty and integrity, I just thought, well, I need to be an atheist because I no longer have good reasons to believe in God. So I was an atheist for a short period of time, but uh, found the atheistic worldview not to have the kind of answers that I, I, I've been searching for, that I wanted, that I needed to make sense out of reality. In particular, I didn't think atheism provided uh, ultimate grounds for my intuitions about morals, right and wrong, about uh, love, didn't provide good in, uh, foundations or frameworks to think about beauty and even truth. Um, and so I began to look for a theistic framework, a theistic metaphysics that could account for those better than what I was finding in a, um, we'll call it an atheistic materialist world. Now I'm a, I'm a naturalist or a materialist in the sense that I think that real, that uh, the world and existence is real and we should take that into account. I'm not a, you know, sort of an idealist who thinks that those things are just somehow, uh, ideals or ideas that uh, float but um, for me to make sense out of reality I had to have some ultimate theistic ground and it had to be a different view of God than the one that I had heard growing up and the one that I had preached as an evangelist because there were various inconsistencies in that view of God, and uh, that kind of began me on a quest to to both affirm theism, but also find a theism that made sense biblically, experientially, logically, and in light of uh, the natural sciences. Mm. So you you point especially to, I guess, um, the inability of the materialist or physicalist worldview to um, to provide an adequate framework for morality and beauty and truth. Um, can you flesh that out a little bit more? What what was it specifically that you found deficient in terms of an ability to provide a moral framework, let's say? Yeah. Well, I had this deep intuition, and still have it, that uh, I ought to be loving, that I ought to do good things to people. And um, intellectually, I couldn't find anything in a materialist or atheistic materialistic world that supported or led me to think that there was some ground or foundation for those deep intuitions. And um, the attempts that folks made in those traditions to account for altruism, compassion, generosity, never seemed to be very satisfying. They could maybe account for isolated cases of why maybe I might act for the good of my own uh, you know, kin, my own family, or act for the good of my neighbors if they're going to act for my good. But uh, they didn't do a very good job of accounting for being compassionate to my enemies, my strangers. And they didn't do a very good job, in my view, of giving some ultimate meaning to my life. And um, I'm not saying that you know theism and theology provided this absolute certainty in my life, but it provided a better way of making sense of these things than 
than uh, materialism in this atheistic form could could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the world, even the word "ought" that you used is something that is sometimes is somewhat difficult, I think, to defend from within a, a purely physicalist way of looking at the world because it is hard to escape from a determinism. Um, it would seem that uh, at least there's a probabilistic undergirding to even quantum reality that lends itself to sort of a uh, law-like uh, um, structuring of the universe that uh, would would seem like on the chemical level controls our uh, our brains, our, our brains, biochemistry, and uh, the way it all functions. That uh, that that it's it's uh, even if we can talk about somehow or another free will emerging from that, uh, it's hard to move still to an ought ultimately. At least that's something I I struggle with how to move to the ought. Maybe you have some answers to that, um, um, or or some ways of articulating um, uh, how you think about those things. Yeah, well, I guess for me, I begin with those, what I call in the book, book um, experiential non-negotiables. Those things that are so fundamental to the way I live my life that to deny them would live a life of contradiction. And one of those is my deep intuition that I have some measure of freedom. And if I begin there and then try to make sense out of the world, it's not unlimited freedom. It's always limited. But I do seem to make free choices. I made a free choice whether or not to do this interview, for instance. If I begin there, then that makes me begin to think differently about um, how the world works in terms of freedom and determinism. I mean, if you if you read the literature... The vast majority of atheistic materialists are also, or I mean, sorry, atheistic, uh, did I say materialist? That's what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. A vast majority of them are determinists who think that there is no free will, or at least compatibilists mm-hmm. who think yeah. Yeah. that uh, free will is somehow compatible with being determined. But uh, that makes no sense to me given my own experience. And you know, given the uh, the things I not only expect out of myself morally, but expect out of my children, expect out of my next door neighbors, expect out of my president. I mean, mm-hmm. there's all mm-hmm. kinds of oughts that I expect in the world. And those are so deep. There's such a fundamental uh, commitment I have to those. It seems to me that I can't ignore those if I'm going to try to make sense out of reality. Yeah. So, so it's really libertarian free will is a is a very important experiential bedrock kind of foundational thing that uh, that would lead you in the direction of open theism. And and I think for me, as I've been wrestling with open theism too, certainly it's it's that portion of of my own experience and of even the biblical narrative that I find uh, has to open up some sort of space for um, for um, some sort of openness uh, within the created reality. Otherwise, I think it's difficult to solve up. Um, problem of evil, uh, which is really what a lot of your book is dealing with, too. Um, you know, but uh, the compatibilist idea, um, just for those who maybe aren't familiar with some of this discourse around open theism or libertarian free will and compatibilism, the compatibilist position would essentially be that um, that that God so orchestrates our desires that we are doing what we want to do always. So we do have freedom of choice, but the freedom of choice is only to fulfill our desires. And those desires, by and large, are shaped by God in such a way uh, uh, that we we really are, um, uh, our, our, our choice that we perceive as free is really also determined at the same time in a compatibilist sort of way. Libertarian free will would say, no, no, we actually genuinely can choose. We could, we could choose one option. Option, uh, rather than the other. Um, 
Well, uh, so, uh, Tom, like my last OnScript interviewee, then Greg Boyd, you're an open theist, um, but this is um, uh, a pretty vague and broad category. This is a large umbrella term, right, this open theism, and it can mean anything from a simple belief in libertarian free will, uh, which, you know, would be something that I think a lot of, uh, of theologians and, and biblical scholars uh, would want to embrace some sort of uh, form of libertarian free will, but it can mean everything from that to pantheism. Uh, so for you, what's at the core of open theism, uh, maybe, and then hey, let's start there, and then I'll have a follow-up question uh, to see maybe where you would ha uh, position yourself on that whole spectrum. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you began by saying there's lots of diverse possibilities within open theism, um, even amongst the Christian open theists who are often identified with the movement. There's significant differences of views on uh, how to affirm open theism, God's relationship to, or God's power, those kinds of things. Uh, I think what's fundamental to all of the positions I would call legitimately open theist positions is the view that the future is not yet actualized and that God and creation is moving moment by moment into a future not yet actualized. And so, um, you know, some people come to that position by reading scripture and they see the God of the Bible described as having a change of mind, doing different things, uh, being affected by the world. Other people come to it through the sciences, through quantum physics or other things. Who These people are people who believe in God and think, well, you know, if this is true of the natural world and God created it this way, maybe this is also true of God. And philosophically, there's a number of ways you could come to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but fundamentally, it's a notion, it's a view that God's relationship to time is similar to our relationship with time. Mm -hmm. The classic view is tended to say God is timeless or outside time is the common, you know, parlance there. Mm -hmm. And open theists say, no, God experiences time in some way like we do, so that there's really a past for God and really mm -hmm. a future for God, and God is moving moment by moment into the future, and God cannot know with absolute certainty in the present moment what's going to happen in the future, because the future is not yet settled, not yet actualized, not yet knowable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so usually a, a corollary with that would be that God's omniscience entails all that God could possibly know, uh, but there are things that are just beyond God's ken that he can't possibly know. Exactly. All open theists believe God knows everything. The question is, what is the everything that God knows? And here they have differences with mm -hmm. other Christians on that. So as a follow-up, then, where would you plot yourself on the spectrum of open theism? Um, you know, obviously, if it's a big umbrella term, are there things that you would want to distance yourself from that some open theists believe that you'd be like, I don't believe that, uh, or things that you would particularly want to applaud that you're, you said, that's the part I'm really into? Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing about open theism is that it's also similar to another theological movement called process theism. And um, the process people and the openness people sometimes want to make distinctions in how they're different from one another. And what's different about me is I kind of don't fit perfectly in any of those categories. So uh, one of the things that open theists will say is that they're more biblically oriented. They take their cues about God more uh, from Scripture than maybe the way they think process 
theologians do. Uh, most of them, most of the openness folks have some sort of evangelical background or linkage or they're teaching at evangelical institutions. They think of themselves as more traditional Christians, you might say, or traditional believers. Uh, open theists tend to, uh, you know, have a greater emphasis on certain kinds of piety. Um, so I'm an open theist in those kinds of ways. I look to scripture, you know, especially on matters related to God and salvation. I don't think it's inerrant or I don't think scripture gives me the answer for all things, but I try to make scripture my primary starting point when I think theologically. But, uh, process theists have rethought God's power in ways that make them say that God can't do some things that open theists believe that God could do but chooses not to do. And so on that particular view, on the view of God's power, I'm more like the process people. Now the answers for why the process people or the process, the answers that process people give for why can't God can't do certain things vary fairly widely. And my position doesn't fit them all that well. So I'm kind of a hybrid. I'm kind of my own little camp. <laughs> so I call myself an open and relational theologian because I share uh, so much in common with um, these views. Um, if people call me an open theist, I say no problem there. You know, if people call me a process theist, I want to make sure I know what they mean by the term because so few people understand that term well. Mm -hmm. but, What's um, something specifically in process theology that you would uh, you would re reject? Is there something specifically in it that's widely held within process theology that you're like, no, definitely not on board with that part? Well, see, that's the problem. Like, there's no one essential thing that all process theologians hold. In fact, you know, uh, I I was a graduate of Claremont, and my dissertation advisor was a guy named David Griffin. He's written a book in which he talks about. 12 core doctrines of process theology. Well, another person who was my professor there, a guy named John Cobb, if you ask him what the core doctrines of process theology are, he says there are none at all. Hmm. So, um, you know, it's very difficult to say, well, here's this one thing that I disagree sure. with process thought on. But if I were to pick something, just sort of uh, one of the things that some people know about process thought, some people know that uh, Charles Hartshorn, an important process philosopher, did not believe in life after death. He mm. thought that when we died, that was the end of things. Um, I'm a person who does believe in life after death, and so do some other process thinkers. So that would be one way that I would differ from at least Charles Hartshorn's view of mm. process theism. Okay, that's helpful. It, it oftentimes doesn't sort of fold into a, a panentheism oftentimes, the, guy, the idea that maybe God might be somewhat separate from creation, but is also imminent in creation, or maybe even to a full-blown pantheism. Yeah, um, the process folks want to be careful not to be pantheism, but most of them are panentheists. But here again, yeah. it's hard to know exactly what the panentheism yeah. means. So if, sure. if it's defined broadly, then I would say I'm a panentheist. But if you start getting down to the weeds, I would have some differences with some of the other panentheists. Gotcha. All right, well, let's change the pace here and uh, do a speed round. Uh, so the idea here is uh, you're just giving me a quick answer, you know, 10, 20 second answer. You don't really get to explain why you believe what you believe. You're just telling us your answer to the question. Are I like you ready? it. Yeah, I like it. Let's do it. All right. What's a trend in society that scares you? 
obedience to those in authority without much reflection for why we should obedient be obedient. It's good. A trend in society that encourages you. I'm encouraged that folks, especially younger people, are looking for alternative ways to make sense out of God, theology, scripture, and Christianity. All right. You walk up to the bartender and you order what? <laughs> Iced tea. Okay. <laughs> I don't drink alcohol. So. All right. Yeah, you're, na- you're Nazarene, so not too surprising there. Uh, I could have just got you fired there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, what's something you find embarrassing? Embarrassing? Um, I'm not easily embarrassed. Ask my kids about this. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm embarrassed when I... Uh, forget people's names that I should know, and that happens frequently enough. Yeah, I hate. that's awkward. That's awkward, especially when you're a professor. You tend exactly. to know a lot of names for a lot of students, and and then you haven't seen them for two years, and then you see them, and then it's like, yeah. I know I know you, but the name's hard. Yeah, I hate that. Uh, all right, do you believe in ghosts? No. All right, that's it for speed round one. I have another one later on if we have time. Uh, so, so back into our sort of more uh, thoroughgoing, uh, large-scale questions here. So, uh, you know, Tom, I found your your fourth chapter on models of providence. I think one of the most helpful portions of your book. The whole book was excellent, but you detail seven different models for divine providence. Um, and uh, so, uh, some of these models are are more prominent, some of them less prominent. And, and maybe just for the sake of the listener, I'll just really quickly read through the list of the seven. This is on your page 83. Uh, number one, God is omnicause. Number two, God empowers and overpowers. Number three, God is voluntarily self-limited. Number four, God is essentially kenotic. That's the, the, the view you're going to defend. Uh, number five, God sustains as impersonal force. Number six, God is initial creator and current observer. And number seven, God's ways are not our ways. Uh, so we have uh, those first three uh, that are probably the ones that are more prominent, I would say, among professional theologians. <clears throat> God is omnicause. God empowers and overpowers and God is voluntarily self-limited. Um, do you want to walk us through some of the details of, of any of that? What do we mean when we talk about God as maybe omnicause, and why would you why would you be reticent uh, to embrace that model, or, or maybe some of these other models? Yeah, so the first one, God is omnicause, is basically a form of thoroughgoing theological determinism, or hardcore Calvinism, we might say. And that is that just the view that everything that happened is what God causes and does. And, you know, you can draw uh, quotes from Calvin and other folks in Christian history who make this kind of claim. There's all kinds of problems with this, in my view. One of them, of course, is that makes God the author of everything that we think is evil in the world. And I just can't stomach that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the primary pressure I think toward open theism is that within the omnicausal model, it's very difficult to somehow or another um, uh, get God to escape from the problem of evil, right? I mean, Luther, uh, who was uh, I think quite uh, on the determinist side of things himself, you know, I think famously quoted something along the lines of, "Well, the devil is is God's devil." Right? Yeah. That, um, yeah. That ultimately there's some sort of secret double will we might talk about in the Calvinist tradition within God, or some sense in which uh, the 
apparent will of God is different from his secret will, uh, as you have to try to make those sorts of moves in order to, uh, to, to try to get God uh, distant from the problem of evil. Uh, but it's very hard within the omnicausal model. So I think that's a lot of the impetus. I, I think it's correct to say in your own theology and in many people's theology towards open theism is uh, the difficulty or perhaps the sheer impossibility of dealing with the problem of evil. All right, good. How about, um, yeah, out of those other two, um, we had then uh, God empowers and overpowers, or God is voluntarily self-limited. Do you want to tackle uh, either of those and, and offer brief criticism? Yeah, let me actually do them together, because the difference between the two is really a difference in degree and not in uh, not a difference of kind. So what I meant by the first one of God empowering and overpowering is probably the common view amongst most people I talk to in churches that I'm a part of or been in. And that is they want to say that God controls a lot of things, but also that sometimes God doesn't. God gives free will. And so um, sometimes they'll actually credit things that are bad happening to the devil doing it or demons. Um, This particular way of making sense out of reality, I think, is the most chaotic, the most discombobulated, because you never quite know who to blame. And it's there's no real Mm -hmm. system here. Uh, Mm -hmm. I say this, uh, that it's the most popular view amongst Christians, not because uh, there aren't some really smart academics who also hold this view, but um, it's just it's kind of hard to know exactly what to say to this position because Mm -hmm. just about any event can be interpreted in a variety of ways. Mm -hmm. The difference between that and what I call the God is voluntarily self-limited is most folks in that camp are professional thinkers, theologians, biblical scholars, and they want to emphasize that God is generally giving freedom and agency to the world. God is generally not intervening to control there's real chance and randomness in the world. But uh, because they say God is voluntarily self-limited, they also hold out the possibility that sometimes God does, you know, maybe do a miracle and control things or resurrect Jesus from the dead through control or maybe create the world out of nothing. Or every once in a while, God will will control to fix something or do something in a unilaterally determinative manner. And, um, of course, the problem with both of these is also related to the issue of my book, The Problem of Evil. And that is, while the God of the omni-cause is the cause of evil in the world, the God who is envisioned by the the second two um, models, the God who empowers or overpowers or the voluntarily self-limited God, that God allows evil in the world. We may not say God did it or caused it, but God has the capacity and the power to prevent it, and yet God allows it. And I find this problematic uh, for a host of reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, probably you're right in saying that probably most um, or a lot of professional theologians would land there. And it, it is you do r- run up uh, against, I think, some difficulties with the problem of evil. I wonder um, for some they might uh, you know, kind of push that into the eschatological um, sort of uh, framework and say that, well, even if we don't know um, 
let's say there's some 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 tragedy like you described the rape of this woman uh, in the first chapter. Uh, you know this 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 woman who's very brutally ra raped and it's a genuine evil in the world. Um, I think a lot of theologians would want to say, well, we don't know really what God's restorative justice might look like uh, in the new age, in the creation age, and we want to say that we we have to keep that broadest framework in view, right? Uh, as as we think about God's ability to uh, to somehow or another make that wrong right uh, in uh, in the resurrection age. So I wonder if that's an answer that some would give. Uh, at least to um, why it is that God can still maintain justice in the universe. Yeah, I think that is an answer some give. It's not an answer I find satisfying. It's, to me, just a subtle appeal to mystery. Um, mm -hmm. And it's saying, well, you know, we'll know by and by what the, the cause of this is. Mm -hmm. And I want to say to those people, well, you, you need to give me a reason why I should believe in God right now in order to think that there is going to be a by and by in which God mm -hmm. makes things right. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. I don't think folks who give that answer are really taking seriously the notion that there might not be a God at all. And the problem of evil is placing that question right in the center. They're just, they're just assuming there is a God and saying, well, in the future, we'll, you know, we'll, we only see through a glass darkly now, but we'll see it well then and we'll understand. Mm -hmm. And, um, to me, that's just an appeal to mystery. Hmm. They might, they might, uh, they might see that as appeal to the resurrection, though, too. I think, kind of within the strongest strands of Christian theology, to say that we see how God deals with the mistreated sufferer, right, and that God is powerful to exercise His justice in the resurrection, uh, or maybe appeal to Job and say that you know, although Job, you know, loses everything, that that part of the point of the book and the restoration of Job uh, in the end, you know, of of receiving back, you know, double fold and all of that, uh, is to point us to an eschatological horizon and God's ability to make those things right in the end. Yeah, so, I'm sure that's what they would do. But again, my, my issue is they're just assuming there is a God. And mm -hmm. I think the problem of evil, if taken seriously, should make us question whether or not there's a God at all. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, uh, you then move to your to your model, uh, your essentially kenotic model, and do you want to um, uh, explain sort of the logic of your model uh, for us and the details of it a, a bit? Yeah, maybe the way to do that is to compare it with the the uh, the idea that God is voluntarily self-limited. So there's a number of uh, theologians, as we've already mentioned, who believe that God has decided voluntarily not to be controlling, at least not most of the time. And they say this is an act of love on God's part because uh, God uh, wants to show love by giving agency and freedom to the world. And as I've mentioned, that the problem with this, of course, is that if a God could control situations to prevent genuine evil, one would think a loving God would do that. My view says that God's self-giving, others-empowering love derives from God's nature. It's not a voluntary choice. In fact, you might call my view involuntary self-limitation. That is that uh, the kind of limitations God has are come from God's own nature. Now, there's some process theologians who want to say God is limited, and it sounds as if they're appealing to these limitations coming from external forces, maybe uh, 
other principalities and powers or the metaphysical laws or maybe the God-world relationship or something like that. And I'm saying these limitations derive from God's own nature. So it's a self-limitation in the sense that the limitation is part of who God is, but it's involuntary in the sense that God doesn't choose whether or not to be self-limited. It's just who God is. It's, it's uh, as I say in the book, it's saying that love comes logically prior to God's choosing or choice. And so my view says that God necessarily gives freedom to those creatures who are complex enough to express freedom, gives agency and self-organization to less complex creatures, and provides the law-like regularities of nature. And this derives from God's loving essence or loving heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's, I think, well articulated. I think that it, it does sort of highlight the contrast between models that um, logically prioritize God's sovereignty. And, uh, and so that if you logically prioritize God's sovereignty, uh, well, then God uh, first has to choose what to do and has to choose to self-limit uh, as he could stop evil or he could allow it to go forward. Uh, but if, in fact, love comes first, uh, that might not even be possible for God exactly, uh, to, yeah. to exercise that sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And even some of my fellow open theists, in fact, the majority of my fellow open theists, Think that loves uh, th- think that uh, God's sovereign choice comes first, uh, in, at least in some aspects. And so, in one of the chapters in the book, I I criticize one of my very good friends, John Sanders's view here, because he ends up having to say that God allows certain evils to occur, because, as I argue, for him, divine choice comes prior to God's love in God's nature. Of course, what makes my view controversial for many people is that I'm very open and honest of saying that the implications of my view are that God can't do some things. Mm-hmm. Many people are, you know, feel okay by, with saying God won't do certain things. Mm-hmm. But I go a step further and say there's some things God can't do simply by, by virtue of being God. And uh, this sounds really awkward to people, even though if you look at the history of theology and you study it carefully, there have been folks in the past who said that God can't do certain things. You know, God can't, for instance, change the past, according to Thomas Aquinas, and God Mm -hmm. can't do that which is illogical. God can't decide, you know, look, uh, this being omnipresent really sucks. I'm not going to be in New York City over the weekend or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there are certain things that the Christian tradition has said that God must do because by nature that's who God is. But mm-hmm. I take the step, I take a next step and say God's love is a kind of, uh, it has a, has a particular character to it. It's self-giving, others-empowering and therefore uncontrolling. And so God can't control others by withdrawing their freedom, not giving it to them, or overriding it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and one of, the, one of the challenges that might be issued you know, to your project would be around this definition of love, and I know this is something you've done a considerable amount of work on, and I haven't read all your work, um, but someone might say that, that uh, at least from a biblical standpoint, I don't know from a philosophical standpoint, that there might be other ways to define love other than uncontrolling, right? Um, there could be perhaps 
models of uh, love that allow sovereignty and love however it's defined to be in a non-competitive relationship to say that actually love and sovereignty go hand in hand as uh, sovereignty might be exercised uh, in the service of love or um, or so on and so forth so w how did you come to the definition of love as uncontrolling uh, and and, uh, and 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 how can you give us confidence that that truly is the center of, of of, of how love should be defined? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for some people I know who talk about love, for them it's just like, it's just like obvious that love is uncontrolling. That's sort of just inherent to what it means to be loving. But other people mm -hmm. come to it and say, no, you know, I can imagine situations in which if control was a possibility, then uh, I ought to control in the name of love. And uh, so I don't make the argument in the book that not controlling is somehow inherently, or what we say in philosophy, the a priori understanding of love. What I make the argument is that in terms of God's love, we have a posteriori reasons for thinking it's uncontrolling. In other words, we have reasons to think that God is not in control by the way the world works, especially as it relates to evil. So um, if, in fact, God did have the kind of capacity to control others and God is loving, then we would think that God should be controlling a whole lot more often than what we find to be able to prevent genuine evils. But because mm -hmm. there are genuine evils in the world, and there's lots of them, we have grounds to think that God's love is inherently uncontrolling. And so it's an, it's an a posteriori argument rather than an a priori one. I don't go to the Bible and say, you know, here's verse, chapter and verse, which tells you exactly that love is not controlling. I mean, I can put together some things that, you know, can make a case for that, but I don't think it's explicit in Scripture one way or the other. Um, so what I want to say is, how do we make sense of things from a broader picture, taking into account all kinds of factors when we try to think about whether or not God is, has the capacity to control others when loving. Hmm. That's good. It, it feeds into, I think, uh, some of the parts I thought were actually the most interesting were the, at the very tail end of your book, and the, the last two chapters especially, and, um, uh, as you, um, you, you dealt with issues like, for instance, of God's um, omnipresence as a spirit, and what some of these the implications might be uh, for a doctrine of providence that I hadn't really ever thought through before, at least not very carefully. I'm going to just read a little bit. Uh, this is from your one, page 179. It'll also give listeners a sense of your writing. Um, As an omnipresent spirit with no localized divine body, God cannot exert divine bodily influence as a localized corpus. So obviously here you're talking about, uh, apart from the, uh, uh, the incarnation of Jesus, where God did take on a bodily form, uh, in general we would say that God doesn't have a bodily presence now. This means God cannot use a divine body to step between two parties engaged in a fight, for instance. God does not have a holy divine hand to scoop a rock out of the air, cover a bomb before it explodes, or block a bullet before it projects from a rifle. While we may sometimes be blameworthy for failing to use our bodies to prevent genuine evils, the God without a localized divine body is not culpable. Oh, that was interesting. Uh, continuing on, you say God cannot prevent evil with a localized divine body because God is an omnipresent spirit. And then you go on, you can say God can, however, marshal through persuasion those with localized bodies, which would be us, uh, that, uh, that God can somehow marshal through persuasion 
us who do have bodies to do things uh, on God's behalf. Uh, for instance, you use an example, God can call a teacher to stand between a bully uh, and a bully's victim. Um, so I thought that was all uh, very thought-provoking and helpful. Uh, I, but I, I wondered, like, and we might just be pushing at the boundaries of language here, but in what sense then, whenever you say that God can call a teacher to stand between a bully and the bully's victim, how does it, how do you envision this calling working if God, how does God call somebody, right? If God can't uh, exert any influence on us because he doesn't have a localized body. Yeah, good question. I'm, I'm happy you picked up on this, Matthew, because uh, this is one aspect of the book where I think I did some of my most creative thinking, and I haven't found precedent for this emphasis in the Christian tradition to this point. I mean, a whole bunch of people believe that God's a spirit without a, a body, you know, God's incorporeal, but I haven't found anybody who's made the connection to the problem of evil in the way that I have. So it's, this was exciting for me to think through this. In terms of God calling, I'm, you know, I believe God is omnipresent. And I believe in God's omnipresence, God uh, is active as a cause, in fact, a necessary cause in all events. And so, you know, I have no problem affirming some of the very traditional language of the Christian tradition about, you know, God's spirit, the calling to our spirit, us having intuitions, still small voices, you know, those kinds of things fit very nicely in my scheme. And these are going to be kinds of things that we describe in our pietistic language as, you know, God is asking me or calling me or requesting me or commanding me. I mean, all these kinds of biblical words and everyday uh, words that we use to talk about the impression or the feeling or the intuition that we have that God wants us to do one thing or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does that, how does that happen um, if God is the I, I think you, you said sort of is omnicausal, but in an uncontrolling sense, right? Uh, as that's part of your your, th- your thesis as well. Um, how does that? How does God work as the omnicause for good rather than for evil? Uh, and how can we evacuate? You know, like if like a, a randomness happens in the world that's an evil. Uh, and say that um, on the one hand, God is the omnicause, but didn't somehow prevent that. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, for the good, if God is calling us a teacher to stand between a bully, that God's goodness is in that through your, your essentially kenotic model. Yeah, so I wouldn't say God is the omnicause. I would say that God is a necessary cause in every event that occurs. But there are also okay. other causes that are also at play. Okay, so he's one of many necessary causes. Well, he's is, he's is the of... only necessary, but there are other okay. causes, yeah. yeah. Okay, gotcha. So, okay. Um, That's helpful. Yeah. So that way you can talk about God's influence, God's commanding, God's causal activity without saying God is the only. You might say God is the primary cause in those events that, in the, that uh, are for the good because creatures cooperated in them. Now those you know, those random and chance events, God is also a cause there, but they're random and chance by definition. That means that there's not uh, particular intentions that are at play there. And so um, whether or not those end up being good or bad, uh, we don't uh, say God caused them in the sense that it was somehow part of God's plan because they are random or chance. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in, in that chapter that you have, I think it's your last chapter on miracles and God's providence, um, I think this is maybe the most stiff challenge, perhaps, to your thesis, is uh, how can we explain miracles then, uh, as uh, you know, miracles are variously defined, uh, and you do some work on that to help sharpen that for us. But nevertheless, however we define miracles, um, uh, the, the idea that somehow God is uncontrolling, even in the midst of what would seem to us, at least, to be uh, uh, to, to be uh, God uh, acting as primary cause in some sort of extraordinary way. Um, how, how can your, um, your thesis of uncontrolling love explain the miraculous? Yeah, great question. So when I initially proposed this book to my editor, a guy named David Congdon, who did an excellent job. He was, um, was very enjo- I enjoyed working with him very much, although he's no longer with InterVarsity. Um, I said I had envisioned this book really ending at chapter 7, which is my essential kenosis chapter. But in the middle of the chapter, I realized that there were going to be lots and lots of people who were going to ask the miracles question, and I really needed to address that. And it might become kind of a great sort of test case for how we can make sense of essential kenosis in light of scriptural miracles and in light of the miracles that many people claim happen today. So I started writing this chapter on miracles, and I went to the literature. And, you know, those in the academy know that in the literature, David Hume looms large in the discussion of miracles. But his notion of what a miracle is is so different from the way that Christians typically talk about miracles or the way the miracles are and um, are described in the Bible. I mean, he wants to talk about miracles as interruptions in the laws of nature. And I've never been at a church service in which someone claims to be healed and they stand up and say, thank God, the the laws of nature were just interrupted and I'm healed of cancer or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's just not the way people talk. And I Mm -hmm. begin to discover that that way of thinking presupposes all kinds of regularities and what we say in the the philosophical literature, a kind of causal closure in uh, in existence. So I started looking elsewhere for definitions, and um, I was really kind of surprised at how few definitions of miracles are really out there. Most of them have some kind of language about God intervening or interrupting the normal sequence, or it's kind of this interventionist kind of language. And I thought to myself, even if I didn't, wasn't affirming essential kenosis, that would be some real problems with intervening language because intervening sounds like God isn't already present in the causal structures and activities of what's going on. It sounds like God is, you know, at a distance and says, hey, I think I'm going to jump in and do something in that situation when I'm not Mm -hmm. actually there, you know, on a usual basis. So if we really take omnipresence seriously, the whole idea of intervening doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, of course, you can mean by intervening that God controls, and that's sort of the the basis of my book is to say that God is not a controlling God. So I started thinking about how we might define miracles, and I came up with a definition that has three basic parts. One, uh, miracles, I think, are good things. I don't think we look at evil in the world and call them miraculous. 
Secondly, miracles are unusual in some sense. Now, I have some friends who want to say all of life is a miracle, and I get that idea. But the, the, the normal way we talk about miracles is to say that there's something unusual that happened here. And then the third thing is I said that miracles are somehow involve God's special action in relation to creation. So given that definition, I began to look at Scripture and ask myself, does this fit what we find in Scripture? And does this fit the way we think about God in, in today? And um, I was actually... It was kind of fun to go and read through some of the biblical stories that I've heard since a kid and through different eyes and realize that the vast majority, especially of Jesus' healing stories, point to or mention specifically creaturely cooperation or creaturely activity involved there. You know, a lot of times Jesus talks about the faith of the people who were healed. Uh, but sometimes Jesus says, you know, he can't do miracles because people don't cooperate. Um, and even those miracle stories that don't explicitly mention the person's faith or something, they always talk about some kind of creaturely activity. And so I begin to believe that um, especially of the healing, the exorcisms, those kinds of miracles, my definition fit very nicely with the way miracles are talked about in the Bible, that God does something that's new or unexpected or unusual that it's a good thing, and it's uh, done in relation to creation. Mm-hmm. Um, let me pause for a second. There's a lot more I can say, but I get the sense uh-huh. that you want to jump in there. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I did actually, as I, I think that um, for me that, you know, certainly we would want to see creatures that have their own autonomous agency as perhaps being able to, uh, to uh, to work in these kind of ways, but one of the things I think that your your thesis put probes deeper on that I had questions about was uh, you know the natural order itself, or what we call the natural order, inanimate objects. Um, how is it that God can um, involve those in His miraculous purposes uh, without Him exercising some sort of control? It seems like you're attribu- attributing a will almost to inanimate creation. Uh, in ways that I was a, a little bit uncertain with what exactly where you were trying to go with that, or if I've represented your idea correctly in the first place. Yeah, I think your intuitions about the difficulties are good. I mean, I think my definition of a miracle fits very nicely with not only humans, but other creatures, uh, even organisms in the body, cells. But when we come to the inanimate creation, you know, water, rocks, those kinds of things, I do not believe they have a will. I don't make think that rocks can choose whether or not to cooperate with God. Now, of course, the biblical language sometimes um, uses very anthropomorphic language to talk about rocks and water. I'm recently, my good friend uh, Kevin Van Hooser has been talking about my uh, miracles chapter, and he, he asked me to explain what's going on when Jesus says something like, or when it's said that even the wind and the waves obey Jesus, uh, you know, is that uh, inanimate objects with a will? And and if you look at the biblical language and take it just straightforwardly, it's it does sound like wind and waves have a will, but I'm not mm-hmm. making that claim in the book. I have a more uh, modern notion of wind and waves as 
uh, aggregate aggregates of inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. So then the question becomes, how can God act miraculously there? And in the book, I give about three different possibilities. I don't explore them and explain them in depth. Some are related to chaos theory and physics. Some related to quantum physics. I use the Red Sea as an example here. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that here my answers are like slam dunk uh, explanations. Mm-hmm. But I do think they point to ways in which even our current physics can talk about um, some autonomy from the created order that God must respect, and I think God has to respect because of God's nature, that uh, make it the case that God can do miraculous things in relation to creation because the conditions, the circumstances are appropriate for those kinds of miracles. Now, I I say that, and I want to add something that, um, just, to, just to ponder for a moment. Um, when people today talk about miracles, and when we read the miracles in Scripture, the vast majority are miracles, especially in the New Testament, related to personal entities, humans, creatures, other things. It's far, far, far less common to talk about these nature miracles, especially today. And that would make sense if, in fact, certain conditions have to be appropriate for these kinds of miracles to occur. Um, And so maybe one way to think about that is that the greater the range of responsiveness from any entity in the world, from a person to a cat to a... um, to a a lung, to a cell, to a a piece of dirt, the greater the range of responsibility, the more likelihood that there could be the kind of miracles that that involve creaturely cooperation or at least creaturely contribution to uh, God's activity in the world. Hmm. Yeah, I like what you're. I like what you're doing there, as I, and I also appreciate there's a sort of a playfulness in what you're doing, as you, you call these strategies, you know, for uh, trying to account for uh, for uh, the miraculous in terms of especially the creature contributions that does not have a will. Uh, and so I, I can see your sort of feeling towards things and uh, and giving us, a, I think, helpful direct, directions to feel along with you. And, and that's that's wonderful. Um, so, yeah, yeah I, I thought that was a very stimulating chapter. I really enjoyed it. Um, let's uh, we're, we're running shy on time, but I don't want to uh, to cut us too short. I do want to do let's do that second speed round just because the speed rounds are so much fun. Excellent. I don't want to leave that out. Yeah, and I have a final a final a final question for you. So uh, so here you are. You're locked in a gymnasium for 24 hours of 2014. Teenagers, you are responsible for entertaining them. So you do what? Well, I would probably start with basketball, then I'd go to dodgeball, then I'd probably tell stories, and we'd see where we go after that. That sounds pretty fun. I'm a basketball right. player, so I go with my first love there. Are you Are you willing to sing "Amazing Grace" for me right now on the spot? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound 
All right. I, I respect you. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> uh, I haven't asked anyone that one yet, uh, and uh, so that's, that's pretty fun. I asked someone else to sing, and they, they said no. So I thought, well, this time I'll try just giving an actual song, and uh, maybe I'll get a better response. <laughs> well, the people so sitting, thanks. That's, the people, that's awesome. The people sitting around me here at this coffee shop looked at me a little <laughs> strangely, but that's... Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. The scariest thing about growing older is... How long it takes for me to recover from my physical exertions. Ah, I hate it Uh, right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, If you were offered a free space flight to the moon and back, would you take it? Yes. Would you spacewalk? Yes. All right, you're at my house for dinner. The one thing you're hoping that I don't serve is? Wow. What don't I really, what do I not like? You know, I don't like uh, baked beans and coleslaw. Yeah, I'm I'm not in either. Coleslaw is is the worst side dish ever created. Yeah, you know, generally those cold picnic dishes, uh, just not down my alley. Yeah, me either. Hey, well, I think I could have you over for dinner pretty easily. Actually, <laughs> this sounds good. Um, all right, if you were to complete a PhD in a field outside of theology, history, or religion, what would the field be? Neuroscience. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm in. All right, well, uh, back to a back to a final kind of question. This isn't a speed round question, so you can take a little longer with this one. But uh, how should the material and the uncontrolling love of God preach? Well, you know, you're setting me up perfectly for a new book that's come out. Um, about a year ago, some folks who had read the uncontrolling love of God approached me and and uh, we're really excited. They started a Facebook discussion group. And out of that emerged uh, another website in which people wrote 1,000-word essays related to topics in the uncontrolling love of God. Some of these were pastors. Many of these were pastors. But there's also some scholars, folks in various disciplines, some students. And more than 80 of these essays appeared on this website. And they've been collected in a new book that's simply called Uncontrolling Love, with a subtitle, Exploring the Uncontrolling Love of God, with introductions by Thomas J. Ord. That book is going to be available for purchase uh, beginning uh, August 12th, I believe, or maybe it's 11th, which is what, tomorrow, the day after. Anyhow, yeah, that's tremendous. Um, that's fun to get that kind lot of response of the- to your work. <laughs> yeah, what, a, super what an cool. honor, and and it's fun too, just to see where people are taking your ideas. Yeah, <clears throat> um, and a lot of that sort of people are taking the ideas and seeing how they would preach. Some of them are actual sermons, others are you know personal writings. Some of it's academic, but I we ask folks not to really write in academic prose. But um, in a couple of weeks here, we're doing something really wild. We're doing 24 hours of Facebook Live uncontrolling love. And so um, we're dividing these 24 hours into half-hour segments, and people literally around the world have signed up to go Facebook Live and talk about their essays in this book and, and the ideas in uncontrolling love, August 24th and 25th. And then this fall, I'm doing uh, about a... I think there are 10 different locations here in the U.S. where I'm doing a kind of a tour in various churches and universities in which people who've written essays about for this uh, book, The Uncontrolling Love, about my book, are going to come and talk about their essays in a formal setting. And 
So if you're interested in all that kind of stuff, you as the, the listener, you can go on Facebook. There's a couple of pages. The one that's probably the best one to look at is called Conversations on the Uncontrolling Love of God, and that gives dates and places. I'm going to be in the U.K. in, in February and then Switzerland next summer. So, yeah, there's lots of cool things going on related to this new book, Uncontrolling Love, which emerged out of the Uncontrolling Love of God book that we've been talking about on this uh, interview. Well, that's that's really uh, fascinating and exciting to hear the kind of response that you're getting. Um, and it's certainly a, a terrific book. It's very, very stimulating. Thank well, you. I think that Thanks we're so going to have to wrap this up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we, we've sure enjoyed having you, Tom. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Hey, it's been a pleasure to be invited, and I've enjoyed talking with you, Matthew. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Today I've been visiting with Thomas J. Ord about his book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, published by InterVarsity Press Academic in 2015. There is a link to the book on our website, onscript.study. It's been lots of fun. Bye for now. Thanks for sticking around to the end, everyone. Here are a few of your book recommendations. First of all, we have from Bradley Brogdon a self-described huge fan of OnScript. Hello, Matt, Matt and Drew. Okay, so a few book recommendations that I found recently that I found compelling and important in the field of biblical studies. First one, Hidden But Not Revealed, A Biblical Theology of Mystery by G.K. Beale and Benjamin Glad. He says, I found this book to be a wonderful unfolding of the nature of mystery in Scripture and its purpose, as well as an appropriate way to approach it compared against the left-behind method of interpretation. I think we could all be glad for that. Second recommendation is Kingdom Through Covenant, a biblical theological understanding of the covenants by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. This is uh, a masterful work digging into the depths of the meta-narrative of God's working out of his kingdom via via covenants he makes with human beings. Um, He says this is just breathtaking, one of the best books on the coherency of the overall uh, shapes of scripture. And then the third one that he snuck into the book recommendation list is Paul's Divine Christology by the Grill Master, a.k.a. Chris Tilling. It's a fantastic Look at the biblical evidence that Paul did indeed view Jesus as Yahweh, not anything less. And we, by the way, as a note, I should mention that we have an episode on uh, Paul's divine Christology where Matt Bates and I interviewed Chris Tilling, so you can go back and look through the list. Um, And then we have a book recommendation from Lindsay Kennedy, and he recommends G.K. Beale's The Temple and the Church's Mission. So we've had two Beale recommendations here. He says, it was my introduction to biblical theology. It's chock full of insights and connections across the canon. So there you have it. If you have any book recommendations that you'd like to send in and a little bit about why uh, they had a big impact on you, you can send them to onscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. And again, a special thanks to Ed Hatke for sound production and work with us on this podcast. Really appreciate your work, Ed. And as a note, those sounds in the background, as I mentioned before, the sounds of my son playing Lego, because we at OnScript are about real life. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.